If you pay close attention while watching presidential debates, you'll notice something interesting. It's not just that the corporate media is generally biased against certain candidates, but they also use specific identifiable techniques to propagandize their viewers and push public opinion in certain directions. In this video, we'll examine the various ways that they do this in the first nine Democratic debates of the 2020 election. In the process, we'll discover which candidates they do and don't support and which sides of the issues they're biased in favor of. One technique repeatedly seen is starting out very early in the debate by smearing a candidate or proposal that these media institutions are opposed to. As a general rule, viewership is going to be high at the start of a debate and will slowly decline the further you get into it. Especially when watching something two hours long, many people are going to get bored and turn it off to go do something else. Probably in the middle of an empty non-answer from Mayor Pete. I mean, fuck, when that guy talks, even the moderators are tempted to go watch something else. Mayor Buttigieg, you have 60 seconds, during which I won't be listening to a single thing that you say. He's like, uh, Mr. Blitzer, if you could put your phone away now, I'm finished answering your question. By smearing a certain candidate or policy proposal when the largest number of people are watching, you ensure that your propaganda has maximum effectiveness. On top of that, presenting a message at the start of a debate will amplify it even further through something called the primacy effect. As we read on thedecisionlab.com, quote, the primacy effect is the tendency to remember the first piece of information we encounter better than information presented later on, end quote. As Bennett Murdoch showed in a 1962 study, words encountered earlier on a list are more likely to be remembered than those in the middle. This effect has since been found in many other contexts more applicable to our daily lives than list memorization. So if your goal was to have certain information stick inside the mind of a viewer, a good technique would be to present that information early on. Of the nine Democratic debates I analyzed, four of them, after introductions, had their very first questions portray the progressive candidates in a negative light. And we'll start this evening with Senator Elizabeth Warren. Senator, good evening to you. Thank you. It's you have here. many plans. Free college, free childcare, government health care, cancellation of student debt, new taxes, new regulations, the breakup of major corporations. Mm -hmm. But this comes at a time when 71% of Americans say the economy is doing well, including 60% of Democrats. What do you say to those who worry this kind of significant change could be risky to the economy? And we're going to start today with Senator Sanders. Good evening to you. You've called for big new government benefits like universal health care and free college. In a recent interview, you said you suspected that Americans would be, quote, delighted to pay more taxes for things like that. My question to you is, will taxes go up for the middle class in a Sanders administration? And if so, how do you sell that to voters? Sure. Let's start the debate with the number one issue for Democratic voters, health care. And Senator Sanders, let's start with you. You support Medicare for all which would eventually take private health insurance away from more than 150 million Americans in exchange for government-sponsored health care for everyone. Congressman Delaney just referred to it as bad policy, and previously he has called the idea political suicide that will just get President Trump reelected. Yeah, Bernie, that's exactly what Trump wants. Can't you see you're playing right into his Democrats want you to have health care narrative? But out on the campaign trail, you have outlined big differences over how far to go and how fast to go. And, and Vice President Biden, the differences between you and the senators on either side of you tonight strike at the heart of this primary debate. Both Senators Warren and Sanders want to replace Obamacare with Medicare for all. You want to build an Obamacare, not scrap it. They propose spending far more than you to combat climate change and tackle student loan debt. And they would raise more in taxes than you to pay for their programs. Are Senators Warren and Sanders pushing too far 
beyond where Democrats want to go and where the country needs to go. In two additional debates, there were no opening statements, with the opening discussions being about impeachment. A complete waste of time, I would argue, because all candidates were basically in agreement on that, and it just gave them an easy opportunity to condemn Trump and grandstand. Call me crazy, but I think presidential debates should be about illuminating differences, not taking turns vehemently agreeing with each other. Excuse me, am I gonna have an opportunity to agree with my seven other colleagues here? Of course, sir, we were just about to turn to you, actually. Please say the exact same thing things that everyone else just did. After moving past impeachment and getting to what I consider the meat of these two debates, the moderators quickly turned once again to smearing progressives. Senator Warren, we've proposed, you've proposed some sweeping plans, free public college, free universal child care, eliminating most Americans' college debt, and you've said how you're going to pay for those plans, but you have not specified how you're going to pay for the most expensive plan, Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class for pay, to pay for it, yes or no? Let's talk about Medicare for All. Senator Warren, you are running on Medicare for All. Democrats have been winning elections even in red states with a very different message on health care, protecting Obamacare. Democrats are divided on this issue. What do you say to voters who are worried that your position on Medicare for All could cost you critical votes in the general elections? The takeaway message being conveyed to viewers in these questions is that progressive policies are bad. Hear enough questions like this and you'll begin to associate Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren with higher taxes, political suicide, political extremism, unaffordability, and poor political strategy that'll cause them to lose to Donald Trump, irrespective of what the facts are on these questions. I should also note that in one of these nine debates, neither Bernie nor Warren were on stage because they split the candidates into two groups. So of the debates that they were involved in, four of the eight, or 50% of opening questions, portrayed them negatively. It exactly the moment when such disparagement would have maximum effectiveness due to viewership levels and the primacy effect. And in two additional debates, the conversation was quickly framed in the same antagonistic way against progressives. Considering that these debates had anywhere from six Six to 12 candidates on stage, with most of them being more centrist-leaning, this consistent pattern of putting the progressive ideas on the defensive during these key beginning moments, I think isn't just coincidence, but instead indicates a corporate media bias against these viewpoints. Something else you'll notice is that oftentimes the moderators don't overtly make the claim that a certain proposal is a bad idea that'll have negative effects. They just strongly imply that from the wording of their question. Quote, what do you say to those who worry? This kind of significant change could be risky to the economy, end quotes. They're not making the assertion outright. They're just interrogatively dangling it right in front of your face. They're not making the claim. They're just planting it in your head in question form for you to remember and repeat the next time you talk about it. About the subject. Another technique they use is absolving themselves of responsibility for presenting an idea by saying things like, voters say, many are concerned, your opponent has said. This was also done in that previous question. Quote, what do you say to those who worry this kind of significant change could be risky to the economy? End quote. And then after a barrage of such questions, you call them out for being smear merchants, and they're like, whoa, slow down. I'm not the one saying it could be risky to the economy. I'm simply saying, What's your response to those who do say that? Here's another example from one of those opening questions. Quote, what do you say to voters who are worried that your position on Medicare for all could cost you critical votes in the general election? End quote. What they're doing here is 
using other unnamed anonymous people as the vessel for their propaganda. It's the simplest technique in the world. All you have to do is take a smear against a position, tack the words some voters say on the front of it, pose it in the form of a question, and voila, you're now prepared to be a corporate media debate moderator. Wolf Blitzer, some voters say that you're a filthy pedophile. Your response? Whoa, relax, buddy. I'm not saying you're a filthy pedophile. I'm simply asking for your response to the voters who do say that. Phrasing questions in this way gives them just enough distance from the smear that they can wash their hands of it and wriggle out of any accusations that they're responsible for the content of the question. Hey, don't look at me, mister. I'm just a humble journalist dispassionately reporting the concerns of my fellow Americans. Keep something crucial in mind, however. They are the ones that are choosing what to underscore. Nobody put a gun to their head and forced them to tell us that John Delaney called Medicare for All political suicide. They chose to provide that information in their question. So even if other people are the ones saying that thing, they're the ones that made the decision to present it to us as a relevant piece of information worth sharing. Don't let this tactic fool you. The amorphous group known as some voters is not the source of these smears against progressives. The moderators asking the questions are. Another technique they'll use is what I call a continue the smear question. This is where they present a candidate with a question that makes their political opponents look bad, and they basically hand it over to them to further expound upon. They lay the groundwork for a smear, and they're like, take it from here, bud. That opening question to Joe Biden we saw earlier was a good example of that. Are Senators Warren and Sanders pushing too far beyond where Democrats want to go and where the country needs to go? Notice that every opening question Bernie and Warren received was a challenge against their viewpoints. They were put on the defensive. They were forced to explain why a critique of their plans is not valid. By contrast, the opening question Joe Biden received was not a challenge against his platform. They didn't underline any flaws in his proposals and put him in a defensive stance. Instead, they basically asked, aren't Bernie and Warren terrible? Please explain. When it comes to Bernie and Warren, the debate moderators block the hallway and force them to muscle their way past. When it comes to Joe Biden, they're like, right this way, sir. Now let's be clear here, I'm not saying questions of this format are off-limits or unacceptable. It's the inequitable treatment of different candidates based on political ideology that's the problem here. I don't think it's good enough to just cherry-pick a few examples, however, so I gathered every single instance of a continue the smear question in all nine debates and classified them by who the question was given to and who the recipient of the smear was. Yes, that took a lot of work, and no, I don't get out much. There is a political bias we all need to be aware of, however, where when your preferred candidate is critiqued, you tend to think of it as a smear and you tend to think that the media is against them. But when a candidate you're opposed to is critiqued, you're like, yeah, that's a totally fair criticism. That is not what I'm doing here. I realize smear is a loaded term that might make it seem that way, but continue the smear is simply the label I came up with for this question type. When gathering up such questions, my criteria wasn't whether or not I thought the critique was valid or whether I liked the candidate being critiqued. The criteria was purely based based on the question format, where I considered it a continue the smear question if a candidate is framed negatively in the question, and they hand it off to another candidate to further elaborate on that critique. It's not a perfectly objective analysis, but it's as close to objective as I could provide. So let's begin by looking at which candidates received a continue the smear question against their opponents to answer. In total, across nine debates, 27 such questions were asked. Six were given to Joe Biden, five to Pete Buttigieg, three to Amy Klobuchar, three to to Michael Bennett, two to Kamala Harris, two to Tim Ryan, two to Kirsten Gillibrand, 
one to Cory Booker, one to Julian Castro, one to John Hickenlooper, and one to Elizabeth Warren. Conspicuously missing from this list is Bernie Sanders. In nine debates, he wasn't given a single question that teed up a critique against his opponents to easily expound upon. What could possibly explain this aside from bias? Are his opponents just so blemish-free that they simply couldn't think of any critiques of them? Come on, people, we've been here for 14 hours and not one of you can think of anything negative to say about Klobuchar. I'm sorry, Miss Maddow, it's just that she's the perfect candidate. For my health insurance-heavy stock portfolio, that is. You can also break it down by asking what percent of the total questions asked a candidate were continue the smear questions. Bennett, 21%. Gillibrand, 18%. Ryan, 15%. Hickenlooper, 8%. Pete and Biden, 6%. Klobuchar, 5%. Kamala, 4%. Castro, 3%. Booker, 2%. Warren, 1%. And Bernie, 0%. So whether you're looking at raw totals or the percentages of such questions, it's clear that the centrist candidates received favorable treatment by the media. Another way to look at this is to ask who was the target of these continue the smear questions. 27 such questions were asked total, and of these, 18 were directed against Bernie Sanders, or 67% of them. In 14 of them, he was directly targeted, and in four, it was strongly implied that he was the target. Elizabeth Warren, the other main progressive candidate, was the target of 13 of these questions, nine times directly, four times implied. In other words, 48% of continue the smear questions asked in these debates were directed at her. There was some overlap here because some of the questions had more than one target, where they would ask something like, do Bernie and Warren owe voters an explanation of how they'd pay for Medicare for All? Only one continued the smear question was directed at Amy Klobuchar, as was only one at Biden, Kamala, de Blasio, Beto, and Mayor Pete. What I would like to know is what do these centrist candidates have to say about the obvious preferential treatment they receive in these debates? I tried reaching out to the Pete Buttigieg campaign and heard absolutely nothing back from them. To be fair though, I'm told that cell reception is terrible inside of wine caves. 18 continued the smear questions were directed against Bernie Sanders, yet he wasn't given a single question of this format, directed against his opponents during any of the nine debates. 13 such questions were directed against Warren, yet she was asked only one continue the smear question in all nine debates, and it was directed against Bernie Sanders. Such a discrepancy is inexcusable, and again indicates a clear bias against progressives. You might be happy to hear that there were a lot of firings after these debates, of confetti guns in the CNN boardroom. Hey guys, if you're enjoying this video, make sure you subscribe and also click the bell to be notified when new content is posted. The final way we'll run this analysis is to compare, as a group, progressive candidates against non-progressives. Of everybody involved in these debates, I'd say the five most progressive are Bernie, Warren, Gillibrand, de Blasio, and Tulsi. All the other candidates I'd classify as non-progressive. To be clear, there's still variation within this non-progressive category, and some are definitely better and more progressive than others, but I think that's a reasonable dividing line right there based upon the candidates' policy positions. In all nine debates, these five progressive candidates were given a total of 242 questions. That doesn't include prompts for opening and closing statements, nor does it include those terrible down-the-line questions where they're like, let's go down the line and get a two-word answer from every candidate on how you'll end world hunger in your first 90 seconds in office. Aside from those, every question asked or every prompt to join the discussion was included in this total. Of the 242 questions, questions given the progressive candidates, only three of them, or 1%, were continued the smear questions. Two of these were given to Gillibrand, and one was given to Warren. Senator Gillibrand, 
You support Medicare for All. How do you feel about Senator Harris continuing to call her health proposal Medicare for All when it includes a far more significant role for private insurance than the bill you co-sponsored? I want to bring in Senator Gillibrand. You heard earlier Mayor de Blasio respond to Secretary Castro on the question of why the police officer who killed Eric Gardner is still on the NYPD. Was that response adequate? Please respond. So Senator Sanders, Senator Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election. That is correct. Senator Warren, what did you think when Senator Sanders told you a woman could not win the election? (laughs) As we can see, Warren's continue the smear question was directed at fellow progressive Bernie regarding sexism, and one of Gillibrand's continue the smear questions was directed against fellow progressive de Blasio on the question of policing. So really, the progressives were only given one lonely question of this format that was directed against their actual political opponents. And look at the incredibly weak criticism that's leveled against Kamala in the question. On paper, it does change challenge her on healthcare, but it's basically just a linguistic critique where they're like, is she technically using the correct terminology to label her healthcare proposal? It's just not a very forceful criticism. So progressives were given three continue the smear questions out of their 242 total, and only one of these was directed at non-progressive candidates. By comparison, Michael Bennett was given three continue the smear questions, despite the fact that he was only asked 14 questions total, and half of those were just the moderators asking, sorry, who are you again? Tim Ryan, who received only 13 questions, continued the smear two times. Even cretinous troll John Hickenlooper had one of his 13 questions as a continue the smear. Considering the non-progressives collectively, of 549 total questions they were asked, 24 or 4% were continue the smear questions. That is to say, non-progressives were four times more likely to receive a continue the smear question than progressives were. There's also a clear difference in who the questions were targeted at. Of these 24 continue the smear questions, only four were directed at their political allies in the non-progressive category. Secretary Castro, this is a 70% Latino city here in Miami. You are the only Latino Democrat who is running this year in the presidential race. Is that enough of an answer? What Senator Klobuchar is describing there, an economic justice agenda, is that enough to mobilize Latino voters to stand with the Democratic Party in a big way? Senator Bennett, the next question is for you. On the issue of partisan gridlock, President Obama promised in 2012 that after his re-election, Republicans would want to work with Democrats. Fever would break. That did not happen. Now Vice President Biden is saying the same thing, that if he is elected in 2020, both parties will want to work together. Should voters believe that somehow if there's a Democratic president in 2021, that gridlock is going to magically disappear? Uh, Mayor Buttigieg, just yesterday you referred to mandatory buybacks as confiscation and said that Congressman O'Rourke has been picking a fight to try to stay relevant. Your response on guns. Senator Harris, this week you criticized Mayor Pete Buttigieg's outreach to African-American voters. You said, quote, the Democratic nominee has got to be someone who has the experience of connecting with all of who we are as the diversity of the American people, end quote. What exactly prompted you to say that, Senator Harris? Pete responded to that last question by saying that he's running on a campaign of unity. Yeah, with corporate America, maybe. 
The remaining 20 continue the smear questions they were asked were directed at their political opponents in the progressive category, or 3.6% of their total questions asked. By contrast, only one of the 242 questions given progressives, or 0.4% of them, were continue the smears directed against their non-progressive opponents. That is to say, non-progressive candidates were nine times more likely to receive such a question directed against progressives than progressives were to receive one directed against non-progressives. These numbers are yet again a very strong indication of an anti-progressive, pro-centrist bias in the corporate media. Also realize that the progressive group, as I define it, only contains five candidates, whereas the non-progressive group contains 17 candidates. If there was an equal distribution of such questions, you'd expect to see about three times more directed against non-progressives, considering that there are three times more non-progressive candidates. Instead, despite the fact that the progressive group is much smaller, it is overwhelmingly the target of such questions. There's also a much more consistent tone and message in the continue the smears aimed at progressives. When the centrist candidates were targeted, one question focused on economic racial justice, another focused on partisan gridlock, another focused on gun buybacks, and the final one focused on connecting with black voters. Four totally different issues are brought up, and four totally different candidates are targeted each time as well. Compare these very scattered critiques against the extremely focused nature of the continue the smears which target progressive candidates. You've called programs like free college something you might do if you were, quote, a magic genie. To be blunt, are the government programs and benefits that some of your rivals are offering giving your voters, people, a false sense of what's actually achievable? Senator Booker, there is a debate in this party right now about the role of corporations, as you know. Senator Warren, in particular, put out a plan to break up tech companies like Facebook, Amazon, and Google. You've said we should not, quote, be running around pointing at companies and breaking them up without any kind of process. Why do you disagree? There's a lot of talk in this primary about new government benefits, such as student loan cancellation, free college, health care, and more. Do you think that Democrats have a responsibility to explain how they will pay for every proposal they make along those lines? Governor Hickenlooper, let me get you in on this. You've warned that Democrats will lose in 2020 if they embrace socialism, as you put it. You were booed at the California Democratic Convention when you said that. Only one candidate on this stage, Senator Sanders, identifies himself as a Democratic Socialist. What are the policies or positions of your opponents that you think are veering towards socialism? You have said, quote, it's possible to write policy proposals that have no basis in reality. You might as well call them candy. Were you referring to any candidate or proposal in particular when you said that? I want to bring in Mayor Buttigieg on the topic of whether or not the middle class should pay higher taxes in exchange for guaranteed health care and the elimination of insurance premiums. How do you respond, Mayor? Well, Congressman Ryan, are Senator Sanders' proposals going to incentivize undocumented immigrants to come into this country illegally? Congressman Ryan, we are here in Michigan where there are about 180,000 workers in auto manufacturing. Your state of Ohio has around 96,000 workers in that industry. Senator Sanders is co-sponsoring a bill that would eliminate new gas-powered car sales by 2040. Given the number of auto manufacturing workers in your state, how concerned are you about Senator Sanders' plan? So, Mayor Buttigieg. You just qualified, you're 37, the youngest candidate in this field. Standing next to you is the oldest candidate, Bernie Sanders at age 77. Should voters take into consideration age when choosing a presidential candidate? I wanna bring in Senator Bennett. 
Uh, last night on this stage, one of your Democratic rivals suggested that running on Medicare for all would get Donald Trump reelected. Do you agree with that, sir? Both Senators Warren and Sanders want to replace Obamacare with Medicare for all. You want to build an Obamacare, not scrap it. They propose spending far more than you to combat climate change and tackle student loan debt, and they would raise more in taxes than you to pay for their programs. Are Senators Warren and Sanders pushing too far beyond where Democrats want to go and where the country needs to go? Senator Klobuchar, you said in your opening statement you, don't, you want to represent the people stuck in the middle of the extremes. Who represents the extreme on this stage? Mayor Buttigieg, you say Senator Warren has been, quote, evasive about how she's going to pay for Medicare for all. What's your response? Are Senators Warren and Sanders being realistic about the difficulty of enacting their plans? Vice President Biden, you have warned against demonizing rich people. Do you believe that Senator Sanders and Senator Warren's wealth tax plans do that? Vice President Biden, just on either side of you, Senator Warren is calling for big structural change. Senator Sanders is calling for a political revolution. Will their visions attract the kind of voters that the Democrats need to beat Donald Trump? Mayor Buttigieg, your plan offers free or discounted public college only to families making up to $150,000 a year. Do you think Senator Warren's plan offers free college to too many families? Vice President Biden, I'd like to bring you in. You spent an awful lot of time 10 years ago trying to pass a bill far less ambitious than what Senator, Senator Sanders is talking about here. Is he being realistic? What, what do you say to people who, who say that a woman can't win this election? Vice President Biden, does Senator Sanders owe voters a price tag on his health care plan? Questions of this format targeting progressive candidates circle back to a few key themes that are repeatedly underlined. Your policies are far too costly, would cause taxes to skyrocket, our unachievable pipe dreams would turn off moderate voters, and would hand Donald Trump the election. If there was indeed an ongoing propaganda campaign to discourage people from voting for certain candidates, such a consistent and unidirectional messaging theme is exactly what we'd expect to see from it. Honestly, it's so bad that I'd think we'd see a about the same level of bias if Mike Bloomberg just bought up all these TV networks and ran the debates exactly how he wanted to. Mr. Bloomberg, turning to you for your 19th question in a row, when do you think we should allow some of the other candidates to join you on stage tonight? When I feel like it, that's when. Is there a problem with that, or do I need to replace you with someone a little more compliance? Okay, alright, didn't mean to pry. Let's move on from continue the smears to another question category that I very creatively call tough questions. That might sound subjective, but once again, the criteria I'm using here is very straightforward. If the candidate is challenged in any way or presented with a critique against them to respond to, it's considered a tough question. It doesn't matter if I like the candidate, disagree with their policy in that area, view the criticism as founded or not, or view the criticism as strong or weak. So long as it put the candidate in an offensive position, I classify it as a tough question. We're going to first look at healthcare specifically here, comparing tough questions given the supporters of Medicare for All versus supporters of the public option or similar such plans. By the way, I'm not including in the Medicare for All group the candidates who are like, oh my god, I love Medicare for All, and then you look at their proposal and it's basically just a public option. How many tough questions were given to the non-progressives on healthcare? I counted a total of 12 in all nine debates. Most of these, however, don't actually challenge their healthcare plans on policy grounds. Four of them, while technically on the subject of healthcare, are basically attempted gotcha questions, where the moderators are pointing out some perceived incongruency between two different statements or positions. 
Congressman O'Rourke, when you ran for Senate, you also praised a bill that would replace private insurance. This year, you're saying you're no longer sure. Can you explain why? Senator Booker, let me bring you in here. You say you support Medicare for all. You also say you are not going to pull private health insurance from more than 150 million Americans in exchange for a government plan. But that's what Medicare for all would do. So how do you square that? Senator Harris, you started out co-sponsoring Senator Sanders' bill. You now say you're uncomfortable with it. Why? Mayor Buttigieg, you're selling your plan as Medicare for all who want it, yet your plan would automatically enroll uninsured Americans into a public option, even if they don't want it, and force them to pay for it. How is that truth in advertising? Pete's like, look, under my Medicare for all who want it plan, people can spend their money to get whatever they want, the same model my campaign donors follow. Notice something interesting about these questions. Although on paper they're classified as tough questions about healthcare given to the non-progressive candidates, every single one of them contains either a subtle smear against Medicare for All or presents the candidates an easy opportunity to critique Medicare for All. The question to Beto on paper looks like they're challenging him on his inconsistent positions and inability to make up his mind on the subject. It also gives him the easy opportunity to explain why he now thinks that replacing private health insurance is a bad idea. The question to Booker looks like they're calling him out for professing support for one thing, yet actually supporting another. At the same time, embedded within the question is a common scare tactic against Medicare for All, where it's presented as yanking insurance away from people. And again, it sets him up to explain why that's a bad idea. The question to Kamala looks like they're boldly confronting her on her inconsistent, changing healthcare viewpoints. Yet notice that the question sets her up for explaining why she's uncomfortable with Bernie's Medicare for All bill. Finally, the question to Pete looks like an accusation that he's not correctly representing the degree of healthcare freedom that his plan would provide, and in doing so, it also frames Medicare for All as cruelly forcing Americans onto the government plan and forcing them to pay for it even if they don't want to. All four of these questions that ostensibly challenge the non-progressives on healthcare actually do so while smearing Medicare for All or setting the candidates up to easily smear it themselves. You only almost have to admire how brilliantly public opinion is being manipulated here. Seriously, when even the tough questions given the centrists are actually crafty smears against their opponents, how could the deck be any more stacked against progressives? Of the remaining tough questions for the centrists on healthcare, three of them are really just the same one question repeated three times. When I want to bring in Senator Klobuchar, Senator Warren, at the beginning of the night, said that Democrats cannot bring cannot win the White House with small ideas and spinelessness. In the last debate, she said, the politicians who are not supporting Medicare for All simply lack the will to fight for it. You do not support Medicare for All. Is Senator Warren correct? Do you just not lack the will to fight for it? Uh, Governor Hickenlooper, I'd like to hear what you have to say about Senator Warren's suggestion that those people on the stage who are not in favor of Medicare for All lack the political will to fight for it. Ms. Williamson, how do you respond to the criticism from Senator Warren that you're not willing to fight for Medicare for All. Again, on paper, you could say that they're being challenged on healthcare, but look at what's really being asked here. He's not like, here's why your plan is shitty, please respond. Instead, he's basically like, haha, perhaps you merely lack the fortitude to fight for Medicare for All. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's definitely something, but it's more so questioning the character and determination of the politician on stage than it is actually questioning the substance of their healthcare plan itself. So out of nine debates where I counted a total of 791 questions, 
questions asked, that leaves only five questions where the non-progressive healthcare plans were actually challenged on policy grounds. Here they are. Brace yourselves for the journalistic integrity that's about to come your way. The you just said you're offering a false for. choice, sir. Senator Harris, this week you released a new health care plan, which would preserve private insurance and take 10 years to phase in. Vice President Biden's campaign calls your plan, quote, a have it every which way approach and says it's just part of a confusing pattern of equivocating about your health care stance. What do you say to that? Senator Bennett, a question for you. You want to keep the system that we have in place with Obamacare and build on it. You mentioned that a moment ago. Is that enough to get us to universal coverage? Uh, Vice President Biden, you just heard Mayor de Blasio, he said in the past that Democrats who want to keep the private insurance industry are defending a health care system that is not working. Governor Inslee, I want to bring you in. You recently signed a public option into law, which allows Washington state residents to purchase a state-backed plan if they want to, but this may only save families in Washington state as little as 5% off premiums. Is 5% really the kind of relief that the American people need? So one question basically says, Kamala, your healthcare plan seems confusing. Not a very devastating indictment in my view. Another simply repeats an incredibly weak criticism that was made against Governor Bullock by Beto. You're offering a false choice, sir. Maybe this would be a scandalous remark at a cocktail party, but this is fucking weak sauce right here. I mean, come on, he even politely calls him sir in the question. Pardon me, good sir, but I dare do declare that what's being put on offer here before us is a false choice. <gasps> oh no, he didn't. Another one to Bennett questions if taking the build on Obamacare approach would be enough to achieve universal coverage. The formulation of the question is kind of a softball, however, because Lester just asks, is that enough to get us universal coverage? Yeah, it totally is, would be the easy response to this. But okay, it's something. If they were serious journalists, here's the non-softball question that they would have asked on this point. Vice President Biden, according to your own campaign's estimates, your healthcare plan would leave 3% of Americans uninsured. By one estimate over a 10-year period, that would translate into more than 100,000 preventable deaths among the uninsured. How is that acceptable to you? Needless to say, a question like this that strongly and directly challenged a centrist on healthcare was never asked in these debates. Ask yourself this, if there was credible data indicating that Bernie's healthcare plan would lead to 100,000 preventable deaths, do you think the corporate media would bring this up during the debates? It's not even a question. It would be the centerpiece of every single debate. They would characterize his healthcare plan as genocidal. Medicare for all would be compared against the five-year plan of Mao Zedong. Fox News is like, what took you so long? There would be wall-to-wall -wall coverage on cable news about the 100,000 deaths under Medicare for all for the rest of his political career. The fact that this disturbing statistic hasn't once been mentioned by any of the debate moderators is a clear indication that centrist candidates do not receive the same level of policy scrutiny as Bernie does. Another tough healthcare question challenges Joe Biden and other Democrats who want to maintain the private insurance industry as simply defending a healthcare system that is not working. This question I would actually call a serious criticism, although I can't help but notice that it's also a vague criticism. Yes, our current healthcare system under the private insurance industry is not working, but this is such a general and non-specific critique that there's almost no force behind it. Basically, everyone in the country would agree that our healthcare system is not working. Back 
Ash's question is superficial and doesn't drill down into the core reasons that the private insurance system isn't working. The final question given to Inslee is the strongest and most specific challenge I saw against the public option in all nine debates. This proposal won't reduce healthcare costs to the degree that's needed in this country. I think the most important criticism of the public option is that it simply wouldn't work the way proponents say it would, because the private insurance companies would use a number of techniques to cherry-pick healthier individuals and use the public plan as a dumping ground for older, sicker, unhealthier individuals. This would drive up the cost of the public plan, nullifying whatever savings we're told it would provide, and simply prevent it from being the competitive, cost-reducing force that we're told it would be. This isn't just hypothetical conjecture, this industry has been documented doing precisely this, using a number of different tricks in the Medicare Advantage program. I go into much more detail on the subject in my video on the public option, so check that video out, you can find a link in the description. The public option simply not working the way we're told it would due to insurance company chicanery was not brought up in any of the nine debates by the moderators. They didn't challenge the business model of health insurance itself as fundamentally immoral, because profits are made by providing as little healthcare as possible at the highest possible cost. Nobody asked if this perverse incentive structure is appropriate, in a matter of life and death like healthcare. No questions were asked about the strenuous efforts these companies go to to find new ways of denying people coverage and charging them outrageous amounts. The real, forceful, substantive critiques of the centrist healthcare proposals go almost completely unmentioned by the moderators in all nine of these debates. The most they can bring themselves to do is land a few pathetic blows while wearing kid gloves, but when it's question time for progressives, they put on brass knuckles and they go for the knockout. I counted a total of 23 tough healthcare questions for supporters of Medicare for All, twice as many as the non-progressives were given. They were also asked fewer questions overall so 23 out of 242 total for this group means that 10% of them were tough questions specifically about healthcare. By comparison, the non-progressives were asked 12 tough healthcare questions out of their 549 total, which translates into 2% of them. In other words, progressive candidates were five times more likely to be asked a challenging question about healthcare. Not only that, but all 23 of these questions criticize or challenge Medicare for All on policy grounds, compared against only five of the 12 given to non-progressives, 42% versus 100%. Again, obviously I'm not opposed to critical, policy-oriented questions as a matter of principle, it's the inequitable treatment of the different groups that's problematic here. Here, for your viewing pleasure, are all 23 of the tough healthcare questions for progressives. I know it's a lot that I'm throwing at you, but you really need to see it and hear it to truly understand the dichotomous treatments these groups receive, not just in terms of quantity, but quality of questions as well. You have many plans, free college, free childcare, government healthcare, cancellation of student debt, new taxes, new regulations, the breakup of major corporations. Mm -hmm. But this comes at a time when 71% of Americans say the economy is doing well, including 60% of Democrats. What do you say to those who worry this kind of significant change could be risky to the economy? You've called for big new government benefits like universal health care and free college. In a recent interview, you said you suspected that Americans would be, quote, delighted to pay more taxes for things like that. My question to you is, will taxes go up for the middle class in a Sanders administration? And if so, how do you sell that to voters? Sure. Senator Sanders, I'll give you 10 seconds just to ask the, answer the very direct question. Will you raise taxes for the middle class in a Sanders administration? 
Senator Sanders, you have basically, you basically want to scrap the private health insurance system as we know it and replace it with a government-run plan. None of the states that have tried something like that, California, Vermont, New York has struggled with it, have been successful. If politicians can't make it work in those states, how would you implement it on a national level? How does this work? I just have to follow up there. How do you implement it on a national level? How do you implement it on a I'll national level, given the fact it's, it's not succeeded and other states have tried? You support Medicare for all, which would eventually take private health insurance away from more than 150 million Americans in exchange for government-sponsored health care for everyone. Congressman Delaney just referred to it as bad policy, and previously he has called the idea political suicide that will just get President Trump reelected. What do you say to Congressman Delaney? At the last debate, you said you're, quote, with Bernie on Medicare for all. Now, Senator Sanders has said that people in the middle class will pay more in taxes to help pay for Medicare for all, though that will be offset by the elimination of insurance premiums and other costs. Are you also, quote, with Bernie on Medicare for all when it comes to raising taxes on middle class Americans to pay for it? Would you raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all, uh, offset, obviously, by the elimination of insurance premiums? Yes or no? If Medicare for All is enacted, there are more than 600,000 union members here in Michigan who would be forced to give up their private health care plans. Now, I understand that it would provide universal coverage, but can you guarantee those union members that the benefits under Medicare for All will be as good as the benefits that their representatives, their union reps, fought hard to negotiate? Senator Warren, let me, let me take that to you, particularly on what Senator Biden was saying there uh, about health care. He's actually praised Bernie Sanders for being candid about his health care plan that Senator says that Senator Sanders has been candid about the fact that middle class taxes are going to go up and most of private insurance is going to be eliminated. Will you make that same admission? Let me just pause right here to say that I love this last question because it looks like he's praising Bernie for his honesty, but really it's a sneaky way of smearing him by conjuring up the boogeyman of tax increases. Senator Sanders, turning to you on health care, I wanted to take this opportunity to first thank you for your honesty, your candor, and frankly your outright bravery in supporting such a despicable, nauseating piece of garbage that I'd wipe my ass with if I ever saw you on the streets. Direct question. You said middle class families are going to pay less, but will middle class taxes go up to pay for the program? I know you believe that the deductibles and the premiums will go down. Will middle class taxes go up? Will private insurance be eliminated? She said page A to the bill, 149 people will lose their health insurance. Senator Warren, to be clear, Senator Sanders acknowledges he's going to raise taxes on the middle class to pay for Medicare for all. You've endorsed his plan. Should you acknowledge it too? Senator Warren, will you um, acknowledge what the senator just said about taxes going up? Let's talk about Medicare for all. Senator Warren, you are running on Medicare for all. Democrats have been winning elections even in red states with a very different message on health care, protecting Obamacare. Democrats are divided on this issue. What do you say to voters who are worried that your position on Medicare for all could cost you critical votes in the general election? As you describe your campaign, including your plans for Medicare for all, as a political revolution, yes. President Obama explicitly said the country is, quote, less revolutionary than it is interested in improvement. The average American doesn't think we have to completely tear down the system and remake it, end quote. Is President Obama wrong? Senator Sanders, you've spent plenty of time discussing and defending the merits of your Medicare for All plan, but the reality is that if Republicans retain control of the U.S. Senate, or even if Democrats win back a narrow Senate majority, your plan as constituted probably would not have the votes to pass Congress. So the question, Senator, is if Congress rejects 
your plan, and the American people are looking to you for leadership on this issue, are there smaller, specific measures that you would take immediately to expand coverage and decrease costs as president? If Congress rejects a Medicare for All proposal, and you're the president, are there smaller, specific measures that you could pursue with bipartisan support to decrease costs and expand coverage? Senator Sanders, you've consistently refused to say exactly how much your Medicare for All plan is going to cost. Don't voters deserve to see the price tag before you send them a bill that could cost tens of trillions of dollars? Uh, Senator Sanders, your campaign proposals would double federal spending over the next decade, an unprecedented level of spending not seen since World War II. How would you keep your plans from bankrupting the country? Senator Warren, you've called for the creation of a government-run drug manufacturer that would step in if there is a drug shortage or a price spike. Why does it make sense for the government for the government to manufacture drugs, especially when public trust in government is near historic lows. Senator Sanders, coming to you now, CNN reached out to Iowa Democratic voters for their most pressing questions. Edward, from here in Des Moines, writes, Des Moines is an insurance town. What happens to all the insurance industry, uh, the health insurance industry here, if there is Medicare for all? What happens to all the jobs and the livelihoods of the people that live in insurance towns like Des Moines? Edward from here in Des Moines asked this question. Yeah, I'm sure that's the case, and it definitely wasn't faxed to you by the CEO of Aetna. Hello, Edward from Des Moines here. I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank Anton for the very hard work he does on YouTube. His videos are top-notch, he clearly puts a lot of work into them, and his jokes especially are very enjoyable, despite what some people say in the comment section. Supporting him on Patreon and receiving access to his bonus videos is one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. If you're not a supporter on Patreon, what the fuck are you waiting for? When it comes to Medicare for All, the debate moderators are obviously comfortable leveling very sharp critiques against it, many of which are downright scare tactics. Think of the job losses, what about the tax increases, will our country be bankrupted? I'm not going to provide a comprehensive rebuttal to all of the points made here, but if you'd like to see that, check out my full politics playlist. I will briefly make a few key points here. The cost of Medicare for All is one of the main things they harp on in these debates. The core thing that needs to be understood is that Medicare for all would save Americans money on healthcare per capita by cutting out the private insurance middleman and thus reducing administrative spending. Five studies on the subject conclude that an average of $3 trillion would be saved over a 10-year period, and when you carefully look at the assumptions made in these studies, you find that they actually underestimate the savings. The claim that Medicare for all is unaffordable or that it would bankrupt our country isn't just wrong, but it's fundamentally nonsensical, because what they're really saying here is that we can't afford to spend less money. What they're really saying is that saving money would bankrupt us. While yes, our tax burden would increase to fund this system, that's a completely redundant observation. Because the whole point of a single-payer system is to fund healthcare via tax dollars. Pretending that these healthcare taxes would be on top of what we currently spend on healthcare is pure deception. The way it actually works is that Medicare for All would be a more affordable substitute for our current system, where we pay for healthcare out of pockets to profit-seeking insurance companies via premiums, co-pays, and deductibles. You could have watched cable news every day of the week for the past three years, and you would not have learned a single thing that I just told you.
After seeing many of these questions, you've probably noticed another propaganda technique that's used, and that's repetition. How are you gonna pay for it? How are you gonna pay for it? How are you gonna pay for it? It's simple. Every time you ask me how I'm gonna pay for it, you pay five cents in taxes. At our current pace, after three more debates, it should be fully funded for the next nine million years. Question after question repeats the idea that programs like Medicare for All or taxpayer-funded college are unaffordable, too extreme, will alienate moderate voters, cause your tax taxes to skyrocket in our impractical pipe dreams. Even if they're only presenting these critiques in question form, through repetition the message gets across, and people begin to associate these proposals with those negative descriptions. Well, the serious, intelligent, well-dressed reporters keep bringing up the question of Medicare for all being unaffordable, so clearly there's something to that criticism. The Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels once said, repeat a lie often enough and it becomes the truth. Now obviously I'm not equating CNN Jake Tapper to horrible Nazi Joseph Goebbels. I realize how incredibly insulting and derogatory that comparison would be. To the late Joseph Goebbels, that is. I kid my friends over at CNN. Yes, you're not as bad as the Nazis were. Congratulations. Here's a question to ask yourself. Why would they bother presenting Bernie and Warren with these same basic questions in debate after debate? It's not just in the debates that they do this, by the way. Anytime these candidates do an interview or town hall on cable news, the same basic smears and talking points get thrown at them over and over and over again. How are you going to pay for Medicare for all? Isn't it unaffordable? Won't it blow a huge hole in the budget and bankrupt our country? If they were asking these questions in good faith, after the first 300 times Bernie answered, answered it, and explained that Medicare for All would actually save us money on healthcare, you'd think they'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense, moving on to something else now. They never do that, though. They never acknowledge that the question has been answered a hundred times before. They just ask the question again, ignore the answer that's given, and keep asking the question as if it's the first time they've heard it. The purpose of asking these questions is not to genuinely seek an answer out of curiosity. The purpose is to mold public opinion by repeatedly claiming and implying that these programs are flawed. Let's broaden things out and look at the tough questions asked on any subject matter. 32 of Bernie's 93 questions were tough ones that challenged him in some way, or 34% of them. Elizabeth Warren, 28 out of 97, or 29%. Joe Biden, by comparison, had 32 of his 99 questions as tough ones, or 32% of them. Pete Buttigieg, 13 of 78, or 17%. And Amy Klobuchar, 5 out of 65, or only 8%. Hmm, how strange that Klobuchar is treated so nicely by the media. Perhaps it has something to do with her describing Medicare for All as a pipe dream. Really, the only candidate who's qualified to speak on that question is Tim Ryan, because if anyone knows about pipe dreams, it's got to be the guy who always looks like he's just feeling the effects of an enormous hit of crack. Looking at the candidates collectively, we find that 64 of the 242 questions given progressives were tough ones, or 26% of their total. By comparison, for the non-progressives, 88 of their 549 questions were challenging, or 16% of their total. So at a very basic level, the progressive candidates were almost twice as likely to receive a tough question of any kind when compared against the non-progressives. Things get really interesting when you take it a step further and break the tough questions down by category. Almost all of 
of the tough questions asked fall into three basic categories, challenging the candidate on their policies, their character, or their record. Some of the questions fall into multiple categories, and there is a fourth rare category that focuses on the Trump impeachment proceedings. 72% of Bernie's tough questions focus on policy, as do 82% of Elizabeth Warren's. By comparison, only 31% of Joe Biden's tough questions focus on policy, as do 54% of Pete's and 60% of Klobuchar's. So the tough questions given to Bernie and Warren are much more policy-focused. When you compare the five progressive candidates as a group against the 17 non-progressives, you find that 73% of the tough questions given the progressives focus on policy, versus 45% of those given the non-progressives. Tough questions about their character, 16% for progressives versus 36% for non-progressives. And tough questions about their record, 19% for progressives versus 36% for non-progressives. So basically, in addition to a higher proportion of their total questions asked being tough ones, the progressive candidates are also more likely to have their questions focus on policy rather than their character or record. Why does this matter, you might ask? Isn't a tough question a tough question? The important thing to understand is that policy critiques transcend the individual candidates and would actually impact one's opinion of every other candidate that shares that same view. So while a tough question to Bernie Sanders smearing Medicare for All, for example, might appear on paper to just be a tough question directed at him, it's also having the same negative impact on Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, and Bill de Blasio, who also support that same policy. By contrast, a question that challenges Pete Buttigieg on his record as mayor of South Bend, for example, could only hurt him and him alone in the polls. It's not going to negatively impact Kamala Harris or Joe Biden. It could only possibly hurt Pete Buttigieg. Similarly, a question that challenges Kamala Harris's previous statements on marijuana legalization and implies that she's late to the party or not being honest with voters is not going to make Amy Klobuchar look bad. So the questions that challenge the character or record of candidates contain the criticisms to those individual candidates, whereas the policy-centered critiques have a spillover effect, where it also hurts the other candidates who share those same policy views. If your goal was to appear unbiased and appear like you're challenging all of the candidates yet actually be helping one group, it would make sense to individualize your critiques of the group that you favor and generalize your critiques of the group that you don't. It just so happens that that's exactly what the corporate media does in these debates. They create the illusion of balance while actually tipping the scales. And this is a smart way to make your propaganda more effective, because if it was too overt, if they were only asking the progressive candidates tough questions, people would quickly notice it and be turned off by it. Another way that the media shapes public opinion is by simply deciding what issues to focus and not focus on, and also by restricting the range of debate within certain boundaries. So in terms of issue focus, for example, it's perfectly acceptable to focus on abortion, immigration, gay marriage, or the day-to-day -day fiascos of the Trump administration, as a few examples. Because at the end of the day, corporate profits aren't terribly affected by these issues. A good way to discover what the media's biases are is to simply ask yourself what issues do they not discuss. Campaign finance reform is one of the single most important issues because until we deal with the special interest capture of governments, meaningful change will be very hard to enact where it goes against those special interests. As of this recording, there have been nine debates so far with almost 800 questions asked, and I didn't see a single one that directly asked what the candidates are going to do about government corruption. Actually, that's not true. Two questions did ask, what are you going to do about the corruption of Vladimir Putin? Uh, Congressman O'Rourke, Senate Democrats put out a report last year on Russia's hostile actions around the world. They suggest the next president could fight back 
by publicly revealing what the U.S. knows about Putin's corruption and work with allies to freeze his bank accounts. Would you take either of those actions, even in the face of possible retaliation? And Mr. Steyer, would you publicly reveal what the U.S. knows about Putin's corruption or work to freeze his bank accounts? Please respond. Mr. Steyer, what can you do to assure the American people that Vladimir Putin isn't hiding under their bed at night? Cable news anchors are perfectly comfortable condemning the governments of official enemies and wagging their finger at them for being corrupt, but at the end of the day, Vladimir Putin's evil machinations don't really affect people in this country very much. I'm much more affected by the pharmaceutical industry capturing our legislators and turning the watchdogs into lapdogs. When legislation that would bring down the cost of drugs in this country gets blocked and stalled for years, you can thank the lobbying dollars spent by Big Pharma for that. People cutting their pills in half or dying because they can't afford insulin, that's some real shit right there that directly affects us, and political corruption is arguably the root cause. Vladimir Putin sipping martinis and funneling money to oligarchs isn't something I applaud, but it doesn't affect my day-to-day -day life very much, and they're just using him as a far-away boogeyman to distract us from the corruption that's taking place right here at home. There were a few questions that challenged individual candidates on their corruption, but I didn't see a single question that addressed the systemic problem of big money in politics. Rare token critiques of individual candidates as potentially corrupt, I guess, are acceptable to the media, but actually suggesting that we do something about this corruption is off the table. One such question laughably suggested that notorious Wall Street critic Elizabeth Warren was corrupted by teachers' unions. Senator Warren, to use Mr. Yang's term, are you just jumping into bed with teachers' unions? I love the projection here. One of the strongest anti-corruption candidates on stage herself gets accused of being corrupt. Black is white, up is down, anti-corruption is pro-corruption. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's not totally invalid to worry about jumping into bed with teachers' unions. With all the student fucking lately, you wouldn't want to get mixed up in any of that. Another question merely hinted at the possibility that Joe Biden might be corrupted by his wealthy donors, and another challenged him on his son Hunter getting a lucrative foreign business position, only after bending over backwards to assert the complete lack of wrongdoing by all parties involved. Vice President Biden, Senator Sanders, as you know, has been calling for a revolution. Recently, in remarks to a group of wealthy donors, as you were speaking about the problem of income inequality in this country, you said, we shouldn't, quote, demonize the rich. You said, nobody has to be punished. No one's standard of living would change. Nothing would fundamentally change. What did you mean by that? And the impeachment inquiry is centered on President Trump's attempts to get political dirt from Ukraine on Vice President Biden and his son Hunter. Mr. Vice President, President Trump has falsely accused your son of doing something wrong while serving on a company board in Ukraine. I want to point out there's no evidence of wrongdoing by either one of you. Having said that, on Sunday, you announced that if you're president, no one in your family or associated with you will be involved in any foreign businesses. My question is, if it's not okay for a president's family to be involved in foreign businesses, why was it okay for your son when you were vice president? The two sharpest critiques of candidates on these rounds targeted Beto and Steyer. What meaningful action will you take to reverse the effect of climate change? And can we count on you to follow through if your donors are against it? Mr. Steyer, you have denounced the special interests that pour hundreds of millions of dollars into the political process to influence it. But in fact, you have spent over $300 million of your own money in support of your political goals. How do you respond to critics who see you as the embodiment of a special interest?
While these last two questions were solid ones, notice that none of the questions that mention corruption or campaign donors ask the candidates what they're going to do to change the system. All of the questions basically take the form, how do you respond to the accusation that you are corrupt? If you think about it, the questions more so set them up for a denial of corruption in politics than an explanation of how big of a problem it is. Who, me? I'm not corrupt. I am a decent, upstanding politician whose moral precepts are unaffected by campaign donations. How dare you besmirch my reputation with such defamatory allegations? They're like, Mayor Pete, are those strings attached to your arms? Who's pulling those right now? None of your business. I'm sick of all these purity tests. As we can see, the corporate media puts clear boundaries around certain conversations. Noam Chomsky had a good quote about this, where he said, quote, The smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum, even encourage the more critical and dissident views. That gives people the sense that there's free thinking going on, while all the time the presuppositions of the system are being reinforced by the limits put on the range of the debate, end quote. As another example of this, we're going to look at their treatment of war and military. On first glance, it might appear that they do a pretty decent job in this area, but a close examination of their questions shows that they're actually only interested in a very narrow range of discussion. They will challenge candidates on their voting record in this area, oftentimes very directly and strongly. Last question for Vice President Biden tonight. You have made your decades of experience in foreign policy a pillar of your campaign, but when the time came to say yes or no on one of the most consequential foreign policy decisions of the last century. You voted for the Iraq war. You have since said you regret that vote. But why should voters trust your judgment when it comes to making a decision about taking the country to war the next time? Other times I'll ask the candidates, what are we still doing in this or that war and what will you do to bring the troops home? Mayor Buttigieg, you served in Afghanistan where just yesterday two U.S. service members were killed. There are currently about 14,000 U.S. service members in Afghanistan. You've said, quote, one thing everybody can agree on is that we're getting out of Afghanistan. Will you withdraw all U.S. service members by the end of your first year in office? Very rarely, however, do they question our levels of military spending and ask why do we spend such an outrageously high amount on this, and couldn't this money be put to better use? In fact, out of 791 debate questions, I counted only a single one that specifically focused on our military budget. In President Trump's first two years in office, the Pentagon budget ballooned. Mayor, Mayor Buttigieg, would you cut military spending or would you keep it on the same upward trajectory? Notice that when it's time to talk about Medicare for All or taxpayer-funded college, programs that will tangibly improve the lives of many people here at home, the preeminent concern of the debate moderator seems to be, how are we going to pay for it? Look at the outrageous cost. When it comes to bombing other countries and blowing shit up and killing and maiming innocent civilians, however, the annual $700 billion price tag of our worldwide military presence doesn't seem to concern them very much. Actually helping people with healthcare? How the fuck are we gonna pay for that, you lunatic? Dropping bombs overseas and racking up an enormous civilian death toll? Yeah, whatever, dude. Don't waste my time with this. I'm busy working on my 40th smear piece against Bernie Sanders.
Looking at the questions they do and don't ask in this area shows that the corporate media is not interested in fundamentally altering the military-industrial complex status quo. They're much more interested in narrow questions, like was this one particular military endeavor a mistake or not? What's the best way to tactically approach this or that war that we're currently involved in? The finer details of how to best go about spending these military dollars is totally on the table for them. Questions that challenge the root idea of whether we should be spending such money in the first place go almost completely unmentioned. This is not a new phenomenon in the media. Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman in Manufacturing Consent talk about how media discussions of the Vietnam War took place within similarly restrictive boundaries. Quote, insofar as the debate over the war could reach the mainstream during the war or since, it was bounded on the one side by the Hawks, who felt that with sufficient dedication the United States could succeed in defending South Vietnam, controlling the population, and thus establishing American-style democracy there, and on the other side by the Doves, who doubted that success could be achieved in these noble aims at reasonable cost." End quote. I also want to point out regarding warfare and military that even in the narrow areas the media does focus on, they still manage to do a terrible job here. Let's take the pulling out of the Middle East questions as an example. I counted 20 such questions in all nine debates. Nine of these are just neutral prompts where they're like, what are your thoughts on this? Two questions are framed in such a way that makes reducing our presence in the Middle East seem like a good idea, compared against nine that make it seem like a bad idea. That is to say, where the questions are slanted, they're five times more likely to be slanted against the idea of removing our military from the Middle East. And I want to put this to Congressman Ryan. Today, the Taliban claimed responsibility for killing two American service members in Afghanistan. Uh, leaders as disparate as President Obama and President Trump have both said that they want to end U.S. involvement in Afghanistan, but it isn't over for America. Why isn't it over? Why can't presidents of very different parties and very different temperaments get us out of there? And how could you? Mayor Buttigieg, you served in Afghanistan, where just yesterday two U.S. service members were killed. There are currently about 14,000 U.S. service members in Afghanistan. You've said, quote, one thing everybody can agree on is that we're getting out of Afghanistan. Will you withdraw all U.S. service members by the end of your first year in office? Senator Warren, a quick follow on that, because top U.S. leaders, military leaders on the ground in Afghanistan told me you can't do it without a deal with the Taliban. You just said you would. You, you would bring them home. What if they told you that? Would you listen to their advice? And I want to turn to Mayor Buttigieg, because you're the only veteran on this stage who served in Afghanistan. We heard in recent days from General Joseph Dunford, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who said in recent days, I'm not going to use the word withdrawal right now. It's our judgment the Afghans need support to deal with a level of violence. If he's not even using the word withdrawal, would you put your promise to bring troops home in the first year on hold to follow the advice? I want to turn to Vice President Biden because the concerns about uh, any possible vacuum being created, being created in Afghanistan if you pull the U.S. troops out uh, has been heightened by what we've seen in recent days on the ground in Iraq. Uh, when you were vice president, President Obama turned to you to bring the troops home from Iraq. You have said on the campaign trail, quote, I made sure the president turned to me and said, Joe, get our combat troops out of Iraq. There was a major drawdown of U.S. troops, and then ISIS seized, by some estimates, 40 percent of the territory in Iraq. You then had to send thousands of troops back in. Was it wrong to pull out of Iraq that quickly, and did the move actually help ISIS take hold? You. I want to turn to Senator Sanders on this because the concern over Afghanistan is very similar to what we saw in Iraq when the troops came out. ISIS filled that vacuum. 
What do you make of people out there who are worried that if we pull out U.S. troops too quickly from Afghanistan, it will create safe haven all over again, like the plotters of 9-11? I want to turn now to foreign policy. President Trump ordered the withdrawal of all American forces from northern Syria, abandoning America's longtime Kurdish allies. As a result, Turkey has now invaded Syria. ISIS detainees have escaped, and the Kurds have announced a new deal with the government in Damascus, a victory for Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad and Russia and Iran. Vice President Biden, we know you would not have withdrawn troops from northern Syria in this way, but that is already in process. So would you send American troops back into northern Syria to prevent an ISIS resurgence and protect our Kurdish allies? Last week, you said that American troops should get out of Syria now. You don't agree with how the president handled the withdrawal. What would you have done differently? How would you have pulled out troops without the bloodshed we're seeing now? Two more U.S. soldiers were killed today in Afghanistan, tragically in America's longest war. Senator Sanders, you've long said you want to bring the troops back home from Afghanistan. Would you cut a deal with the Taliban to end the war, even if it means the collapse of the Afghan government that America has long supported? Mayor Buttigieg, you served in this war, but I want to ask about your decision-making if you were elected commander-in-chief. You have pledged to withdraw all U.S. troops from Afghanistan <laughs> within your first year as president, but the Taliban today control or contest more than half the country. Mm -hmm. So should you, as president, still withdraw all those U.S. troops if the country could once again become a haven for terrorists? Senator Sanders, uh, in the wake of the Iran crisis, Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei has again called for all U.S. troops to be pulled out of the Middle East, something you've called for as well. Game over. Yet when American troops last left Iraq, ISIS emerged and spread terror across the Middle East and indeed around the world. How would you prevent that from happening again? The basic message they're conveying in their questions is that reducing our military presence in the Middle East is hasty, reckless, and would have negative consequences. They also like to ask questions that invite candidates to explain why they're the best choice for commander-in-chief. They're like, what makes you the most qualified to bring us into war? Let's also look at the questions about higher taxes on corporations and the wealthy in this country. Given that these reporters themselves are very wealthy people who work for corporations, the obvious expectation is that they would be against such tax increases. I counted three questions where such tax increases were framed negatively, either as bad for the economy or morally questionable. Secretary Castro, this was for you. Wage growth is up. Stocks are rising. Unemployment is near historic lows, including for Latinos and African-Americans. You have all outlined plans, but you in particular that could end up raising taxes. How can you guarantee that won't hurt the economy? Vice President Biden, you have warned against demonizing rich people. Do you believe that Senator Sanders and Senator Warren's wealth tax plans do that? Senator Warren, I have a question for you. Every candidate on the stage has proposed tax increases on the wealthy, but you have especially ambitious plans that, apart from health care, would hike taxes an additional $8 trillion over the decade, the biggest tax increase in, since World War II. How do you answer top economists who say taxes of this magnitude would stifle growth and investment?
By comparison, I found zero questions where higher taxes on the rich were framed positively as good for the economy. They could have asked them, for example, why shouldn't we raise taxes on the wealthy given that they're more likely to let their money collect dust in their bank accounts? Why not instead tax them at a higher rate and inject that money back into the economy where it'll actually be spent productively? Even if you disagree with this view of economics, the important point is that this view was never given voice to by the moderators in these debates. And this coming from the so-called liberal media, I might add. Yeah, liberal in terms of how much corporate ball washing they do. Some questions didn't really fit into any of the above categories, but they're so remarkably terrible that I had to bring them up here. Look at this question that Pete Buttigieg was asked on his lack of support for student debt cancellation. I'm going to turn to the issue of student debt now, Mayor Buttigieg. You've talked about how you and your husband are paying down six figures of student loan debt. Under Senator Sanders' proposal to cancel all student loan debt, yours would immediately be wiped away. Why wouldn't you support that? They're basically asking him, Mayor Pete, why are you taking such a principled stand on this question, opposing this policy, even when you would personally benefit from it? Some voters say that you're a little too morally pure to be president. Your response? Questions like this make it very obvious who the corporate media favorites are, and questions like the following ones make it clear who their least favorite are. Senator Sanders, President Trump has argued that the United States cannot continue to be the, quote, policeman of the world. You said the exact same thing on a debate stage in 2016. If voters are hearing the same message from you and President Trump on the issue of military intervention, how should they expect that you will be any different from him? Senator Sanders, uh, in the wake of the Iran crisis, Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei has again called for all U.S. troops to be pulled out of the Middle East, something you've called for as well. Leave it to the corporate media to argue that Bernie Sanders reminds them of both Donald Trump and the Grand Ayatollah. Yes, when he's finished issuing his fatwa, he'll come up and grab you by the fatwa. What conclusions can we reach about the corporate media here? They obviously have a bias against progressives and in favor of centrists. No matter how you analyze the question, you find that the bias always goes against progressives. Centrist candidates were nine times more likely to receive a continue the smear question directed against progressives than progressives were to receive one directed against the centrists. Progressives were five times more likely to be asked a challenging question about their healthcare plans, and almost twice as likely to be asked a challenging question on any subject matter. On top of that, the tough questions given to the centrist candidates were much more focused on their character or record, whereas those given the progressives were much more policy-focused, meaning the critiques of the centrist tended to target individuals, whereas the critiques of the progressives tended to target the group as a whole. The corporate media has an apparent quantifiable bias, not just overall, but also against specific policies, including Medicare for All, higher taxes on the wealthy, and reducing our military spending in this country. Specific techniques they use include repetition, framing their smears in question form, and absolving themselves of responsibility by using phrases like voters say or some are concerned. They also begin many debates by attacking progressives when viewership levels are high and retention is high due to the primacy effect. Many of what appear to be tough questions directed against the centrists actually contain sneaky attacks against progressives, and I would argue that in many instances the moderators wear kid gloves when challenging the centrists, yet go all out when challenging progressives.
Here we focus mostly on how the media propagandizes you, and in the next video we'll examine why they propagandize you, carefully inspecting the specific incentives that lead to the existence of bias, the mechanisms of enforcing this bias, documented instances of top-down control, organic methods of self-censorship, and so forth. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss that video, and click the bell to be notified when new content is posted. Become a supporter on Patreon at patreon.com slash skepticalhuman, and you'll receive access to bonus videos, get your questions answered in AMA sessions, and be eligible to win my monthly book raffle. I know we saw a lot of examples in this video, but what do you think was the single worst example of corporate media bias in these debates? Let me know in the comment section below. You can also follow me on Twitter or Facebook if you're into that sort of thing. Thank you all for watching and listening, as always, and until next time, take care.